Hello and welcome to episode three of the Journey Further podcast, where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently, people who are determined to change things for the better. Today's guest is Paul Frampton, former CEO of the Havas Group. He's been an advisor to tons of exciting businesses and startups. He's now European president at Control V Exposed. Paul's real passion, though, is about diversity and what businesses can do to make a real impact in this area. We talk about diversity in its many different forms, how to identify and encourage it. We talk a lot about young people in the education system. We talk about the types of company cultures that foster diversity and tons more. Paul is a super intelligent guy. It was a pleasure speaking to him. I hope you enjoy listening. Paul, thank you so, so much for taking the time to do this. It's an absolute pleasure. Really Um, pleased to be here. Great. Um, I just wanted to start by asking you the question which we start all of our discussions with. Yeah. And that is, what's the wrong you want to write? So the wrong that I want to write, I guess, is around diversity as a very broad um, subject matter. Um, I think given where we are heading towards in a matter of weeks, a new general election, there's quite a light being shone on different parts of that. Um, maybe social diversity is a little bit more kind of uh, in, in centre focus than it usually is. But to me, it's it's everything through from diversity in terms of are women fairly represented? Uh, are young people fairly represented in terms of their opinions? And particularly when it comes to things like politics, um, I think I read uh, last week that more young people have kind of signed up to vote in the last week than have signed up in in the last well since the since the referendum hit and the last kind of uh, last chance to vote so what are we doing wrong that isn't bringing young people into the conversation around our country and the place that they live Um, but then also diversity around do we really understand the issues that people have in their lives when they come to work every day. Um, I think I'm a big believer that people should be able to turn up and be their whole selves. Um, And they may have mental health issues, they may have a different sexuality to the one that people think they have, they may uh, have kind of baggage that they're bringing with them. And unless we understand all of those things, um, and we are comfortable that that diversity brings richness, and that diversity brings kind of different perspective, then I think, unfortunately, we end up looking for people that look just like us, and we all hire the same type of people, and we all very quickly are in in a kind of filter bubble doing the same thing again and again and again. And I think that's very dangerous. That's really interesting. And I guess, yeah, just to begin, obviously, diversity is such a complex topic. How do you define diversity, whether that's more broadly or whether that's in a business sense? Well, how do you define, how do you identify what diversity is? I think it's a great question. I think think the word diversity gets kind of used as something to look at a group of people. So... Maybe it's the cabinet or maybe it's a board table or maybe it's a, a kind of an organisation that's trying to do some good. And people look at it and go, that's not diverse. I think people are very easy, to, very easily able to go, that's not diverse. We spend less time actually going, well, what does diverse look like if it's good? Um, and to me, I think it, I mean, having, having, been, having grown up in the advertising industry, I think the best way to think about it is whoever you're serving and that might be a politician serving a country, it might be a business leader serving its people, it might be uh, kind of a charity serving a kind of particular kind of group of people with a particular kind of ailment. Whoever you're serving, you need to make sure that your business 
is representative of that audience Mm -hmm. and I just don't think that that happens I think if you look at just take a really simple example if you look at Unilever or Procter and Gamble targeting uh, kind of housewives and then you look at the number of creative directors that are actually female um, it was famously only three percent a few years ago when they launched that that conference but I think it's now double digits by 11 or 12 percent but let's say 60 to 70 percent of the purchases for certain products that those big big CPGs produce are female and then you've got less than 10% of the people that are informing the creative message in the property. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. So so I, I don't have any pithy answer on diversity, but to me it comes from, depending on what it is you're trying to do and who you're trying to serve at that point in time, are you representative of the community that you're providing value to? Because if you're not, then you're not diverse. Well, that's an interesting way to think about it. So thinking about it in terms of what's the end goal of your business or the end goal of your organisation and working back from there almost. Yeah, particularly the end purpose, yeah. I would say. Yeah, I mean, a lot of businesses will say that their goal is to make profit, but profit's an outcome, it's not a purpose. Whereas if, if the purpose the purpose of a charity is obviously to change the lives of the people that have a particular aim, and that's very clear. Have you got the right people around the table to inform that? If you are trying to change politics then let's face it probably 40 50 percent of the population that you'll be talking to for the next 10 years will be millennial over a certain age yet there's no representation of those young people around a cabinet they're not even brought in to advise i mean yes someone will say well there's a youth parliament but does it really have any real interaction with the core kind of way that business is done um, in politics and and secondly if you think about a classic FTSE 100 company the average age of a director I think is 62 the average age wow and unsurprisingly they are mostly white and male but there certainly isn't any representative of the youth that are in an organization sitting at that board table right. and I do a lot of work uh, for an organization called Big Youth Group which is trying to help build confidence and connect young people to employment opportunities so that they have a better diverse understanding of the opportunities that are out there versus the ones that further education might give them and we constantly talk to businesses and go how do you how do you make sure that your young employees or future talent or rising stars have an ability to kind of feed into you and they're like that's a really good point we don't again and again and again you think that that feels a little strange that people don't think about that and people just become familiar with well we're in our ivory tower and we know best how to how to how to serve our future kind of talent who are going to build our future business yet unless you think about diversity and you think about it from that purpose and who am I serving, you never get to that point. You don't ever see it as a problem unless somebody points it out to you. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess, well, you've worked in the sort of marketing, advertising world for a really long time for big media agencies. (laughs) No, no, not really. Not 62. (laughs) No, I'm definitely not 62. (laughs) On the way, but not there yet. Um, But, and then also sort of, pioneering young startups I guess when did you um, realize that diversity was this super super important thing that needed a lot more focus Mm. than it was probably getting and obviously you now dedicate a lot of your professional and personal time to Mm. to sort of pursuing it and shining a light on it what was there a turning point was there so 
So I might, I might have to rewind a little bit to, 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 to give an answer to that. So I started in media back in 1997. Um, didn't really know what it was, actually, but found an ad in The Guardian, went to an interview at OMD, um, got interviewed by a guy with his feet on the desk smoking a cigarette and thought, this is a strange environment. Uh, didn't get that job, but they said, we like you. There's some other people with a three-letter acronym that have an agency. Why don't you go and talk to them? <laughs> Which was called MPG, Media Planning Group. Um, and I went and had a conversation with them. And I started work, and it was great. I worked on a very big account um, and got lots of experience. But I, I didn't... I found the culture... The, rank opposite of what they expected. I expected it to be one which encouraged creativity, open thought, uh, a diversity of opinion, all of those things. But what I found was a very hierarchical kind of culture where it was the senior people that controlled pretty much everything. The people on the floor kind of just did what they were told and did the menial tasks and weren't involved in some of the bigger conversations, weren't involved in brainstorms. But equally, like if you did something wrong, you were scolded. I mean, I specifically remember being scolded and being dragged into the office at 6 a.m. in the morning and told that, well, I won't use the words, but it involved a variety of expletives that I wasn't right. fit for fit for this job. And I, at that moment, about six, seven months in, I thought, I don't want to work in this environment. I was so excited about working in marketing and advertising because it seems like such an exciting environment. But I felt... This is like quite a fear-driven culture and it's very hierarchical. So I thought about, well, should I go and do what my parents did, which was go into education and teach children and do something much more vocational? And then I dwelled on it for a second and thought, that's that's giving in. That's really kind of uh, just walking away from something. That's not the type of thing that I, I kind of believe in. So I realized what I needed to do was to try and change that culture. And so I set myself this rather grandiose purpose, and I certainly didn't call it purpose at that point because I don't think that yeah. vernacular was in my vocabulary. But I thought, I just want to change the way this is, and the only way I'm going to do that, this environment, and change it is by getting into a more senior position. So I just went, I want to get that job, I want to get that job. And I rewrote, uh, I, I wrote job specs for certain jobs, for the head of digital, for managing director role, until I kept pushing and pushing to a place where, like, actually now, I believe I have the ability to steer and define what the culture is. And I realized as I started to steer and define the culture that there were lots of other people who had really interesting opinions that had very different backgrounds to me. And often those people were ignored, almost like invisible in an organization because they weren't part of these cliques. They weren't part of the cool, the cool kids in the advertising agency or part of the guys that were doing the buying who were always getting great rates and going out on jollies. Uh, there were lots of people that were in kind of not client-facing roles in kind of uh, insight teams or in uh, kind of planning teams who like were, were I found really interesting people because they brought an interesting perspective, but often it felt like they were almost like these invisible people. So that that was it really. It was I looked at it and thought culture is about creating an environment where everyone matters and as a leader your job should be able to create an environment where everyone can bring themselves to work, uh, their whole selves, but everyone feels like they can turn up and show up in the way that they want to and contribute in the way that they want to and choose how they contribute. And I just didn't feel like that was there. So that's a very long answer, I'm afraid, Nathan. No, but, that's, that's um, interesting. It, it really came from noting what was wrong and then wanting to try and fix it, which is why I got involved in startups. I, I just think the world... There are so many great examples every hour of the day about how we could do things better. 
how we could help young people better, how we could communicate things better, how we could solve supply chains better, how we could use technology to validate whether something is fake or not, or whatever it is. There are so many different ways to do things better. And I think, unfortunately, the vast majority of the population and people in business are quite happy to just sit back and go, I don't want to challenge the status quo mm. because I'm in a decent position. I've got a good job. I'm well paid. If I put my head above the parapet, I'm going to get shot down. And so I've always had this desire to challenge and be a bit disruptive, which for a lot of my career, most of my career has probably benefited me. Occasionally it's got me into trouble, but um, if, you, if, you, if you never got me into trouble and I didn't come out the other side of that and recognise that I still would have done the same thing, then I think you can't really call yourself disruptive. Yeah. And, and what, what progress do you feel like we've made as an industry since those days you talk about when you started the late 90s to now? So I think there has been a big change and a big shift in that culture piece that I talked about. I think there are a lot of agencies, kind of brands that spend a lot of time thinking about how do I create an environment where people, if they're going to spend a lot of time here, then they actually feel like uh, this is a place where they want to be and they can uh, kind of contribute to it. I don't think we've made anywhere near enough progress on the diversity piece, though. Um, I think if you look at the statistics, I mean, the suffragettes was just over 100 years ago and look at how slow the needle changed in those 100 years. Yeah. Um, we we have got ourselves comfortable with small shifts are positive, but equally I've seen in the last six months lots of statistics that are now showing that quite often there's a token woman on the board and they've ticked a, ticked a kind of box and now things are starting to slide backwards, which tells me that things like St things like targets and quotas are not the way forward here. You have to educate, help people understand their own unconscious bias and then try and change behavior, which is exactly what advertising and marketing is all about, right? So to me, that's why I'm passionate about it because I think we all work in an industry where we have a big opportunity to change the way people think. And it was one of the things I jotted down when I was thinking about this was how can you measure or how should you measure something as complicated as diversity and perhaps we almost fall into a trap as marketing advertising digital minded people yeah people think oh well there must be a there must be a to-do list here there must be some metrics that we can work yeah. through yeah and it's that's kind of missing the the really the point of it really. yeah yes 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 and no i mean i think digital you talk about digital i think digital is almost kind of both laid the track for huge growth and shot its foot at the time when it associated itself to metrics. It's like, this is a really accountable medium. Everything's accountable. And now every time anyone looks at it, they're like, well, it's not delivering. It's like, well, how, how are you comparing the view-through rates here with the view-through rates of television and out of home? And how many people click on an ad versus the number of people that actually in any way take recognition away from an ad you walk past or you see on TV when most people are making a cup of tea or whatever else? And that, that tells you that metrics can create the wrong behavior as well as the right behavior. Yeah. Um, but uh, do you know what? I think the, the only way to really measure, to really measure kind of diversity is to get a sense of how things have changed, not in terms of you need to be X percent this, X percent this, because once you add all of it into a melting pot, it's pretty complex. I mean, how do you work out the perfect diverse mix? of a board or an organization 
again, I will take it back to it depends who you're serving. I mean, shouldn't shouldn't every kind of team be diverse in terms of gender? Yeah, of course it should. But unfortunately, we live in a world where the pool, the talent pool, because of all the issues we have, are not. They don't. It doesn't start equal. Um, although actually, sometimes it does start equal, and then actually, women go off and have to have babies, and then they fall backwards, and then it isn't equal. So again, I just keep. I, I, I always keep coming back to the fact that if you can try to measure where you are and where you want to get to. And where you want to get to might not be a percentage. Where you want to get to might be a, we want to do these things better. Yeah. Uh, we want these kind of outcomes. We want to be able to say, in two years' time, this is the type of company we are. I think that possibly drives the right type of behavior. And then you have to trust in the process. Yeah. You have to trust that you've got people that want to go on that journey. So being able to say, in, in two years' time, we want to be able to tell this story about the company or this story about where we're at. Yeah, or, or, or we want to make sure that we're able to represent a particular kind of cohort of society because we have folks in our business that really understand their issues and their problems rather than just reading desk reports and third-party information and go, oh, we now understand how this minority feels and therefore we've built a product that's perfect for them. I mean, that's a classic thing in marketing is everybody at every conference talks about we deeply kind of obsess about the customer. But how many actually really do? Yeah, do you? How many go out constantly and listen? And actually, interesting, last week at Madfest, there were two two speeches or two fireside chats that I did, which are really good on this. One was with Hannah Squirrel, uh, who, who's the customer director of Greg's. And I asked her, what does it mean to you to be close to your customer? And she said, means I go and sit in a Greg's. And I just sit there and I just observe and listen. And I do that every single week in different parts of the country. And then I have a sense of who my customers are and what they want and what they're dissatisfied with. Really simple, like common human, sense, right? simple way of putting yeah. it. And then later, Justine uh, Roberts, who's the founder of Mumsnet, uh, I asked her the same question. She said, I think the best way is for us to be terrified of our customers. Terrified that if we do not listen to them, then our business will collapse. And of course, Mumsnet has some kind of fairly vocal, vocal mums um, that will speak out and have the opportunity to speak out. Um, but... I think sometimes we over-engineer this focus on the customer and all this. And sometimes it's just about as simple as have you got ways to actually spend time with your customers? And then do you have people that empathize with your customers and can therefore represent what they're looking for and what they don't get back to you as a bunch of people that undoubtedly, if you're based in London or some key conurbation, are not quite the atypical customer profile of who you're targeting. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, you've mentioned sort of young people a couple of times, and obviously the the shift which is happening, and probably businesses and governments aren't paying enough attention to um, what the status quo is soon going to be like. Mm-hmm. What what do you think is the sort of opportunity for young people to get into marketing and advertising at the moment, and, and what do you think are the sort of key barriers still standing in people's in people's ways, like? Me, for example, I had a very, mm. um, very fortunate education and studied uh, history in Leeds, but I didn't really know that marketing or advertising was an option until a, a no. friend of someone said, oh, there's a PR job here, yeah. maybe try that. And yeah. they're like, if I didn't really have the awareness, then it, it kind of really dawned on me. I was like, well... 100%. Um, the marketing industry is ironically absolutely terrible at marketing itself. Mm. Um, I remember sitting in an IPA council meeting uh, 
a few years back and we were debating this exact topic um, and then one of the ladies that managed this part of um, the, the kind of program for the IPA put it into kind of really sharp focus by saying that the whole of the agencies and service providers in the advertising industry spend less kind of talking and promoting themselves to uh, kind of potential graduates than just Accenture on their own. Right. So just one business invests both in time and resources and kind of monetary value more in trying to attract people than the whole of the advertising industry, which, wow. I mean, that, that's quite a, that in itself is quite a bizarre right now. And then you might go, well, why shouldn't necessarily need to spend all of that money? Because it should be understood. Um, but to me, it's not, it's not really about that point. It's more about the fact that that means, by definition, that certain, certain jobs people are very aware of when they're at school sixth form or they're at university. Uh, I think there are certain industries, whether it's medicine or kind of management consultancy or kind of uh, the financial industry or stuff like that, that people, people can understand what those industries are tangible. and what they do and they're yeah. tangible, right? And therefore, what I see again and again is that career advisors force people towards that and if they don't think they fit there, they don't fit as a white collar, suited and booted intellectual type that can handle statistics or kind of negotiation or that. Then they go, well, you're not really right for that. Therefore, you need to go over here and you end up, they end up pointing people to you should go to a building site or you should do something kind of out of an office where you kind of use your hands and you're good with design and technology. And yeah. I still think that happens. In fact, the, the founder of Big Youth Group, Jack, Got, got told that because he didn't have enough GCSE. He was like, you should go and do that. And now he's he's founded two businesses, one of which got to an 8 million valuation the first time around. And it's like, well... <laughs> what, is the, what is the missing piece then? What, it, what, what, what is going wrong in the education system or, or, or what else needs to happen to get... So I don't, I don't think we can or... entirely blame the education system, although it does definitely need some, some modernisation. Um, I, I think there is this there is this huge there is this huge gap between further education and business. Like what someone is looking for, and you'll know when you're hiring people, what you're looking for is you're not. Well, I certainly am not. not I, they don't have to have got an amazing degree if they stand out for some reason. If yeah. they've done something or have some experience where they've gone and onboarded some life skills or some kind of leadership skills that makes you think this is an interesting person I quite often will go for that candidate rather than someone that's got a first from an amazing university because to some extent I think <laughs> I think that is diversity if I bring in someone from a different background they might graft harder uh, they definitely will bring a different perspective because otherwise the social issue with diversity is if 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 you're in Accenture or no better example McKinsey mm -hmm. or BCG you look to certain colleges within Oxford and Cambridge and a few other red bricks as your core kind of source. I mean, that just immediately means that you're going to have almost no social diversity yeah. because you're so obsessed with the fact that you need the brightest talent, the top kind of 1% that can do things that other people can't do. But that then means that you get people that don't have a practical view of the world and don't actually, don't actually have kind of real kind of experience of some of the challenges that some of these people are having to actually kind of tackle now. So I think I think what we've got to do is to help fill that gap. So help build soft skills. 
or what I would often maybe relabel as life skills. So how do you communicate? How do you know how to turn up on time? What yeah. does what does having a conversation with a senior person look like? What does actually looking after someone that is paying you for a service look like? All of those skills and learning how to present and structure an argument, excuse me, a lot of those skills aren't taught at school. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not one of these people that says, stop teaching them all this stuff they're never going to learn because they're, they're learning discipline and they're learning kind of structure all the time. But I do think that there's a real gap. So that's what Big Youth Group does a lot of. It does a lot of mentoring, kind of confidence building, and then just connects young people to different kind of employers to just give yeah. them, shine a light on, okay, if you wanted to get into the fashion industry, this is what it looks like. But here's another industry that you've maybe never heard of, and it might be the media and marketing industry, or it, yeah. might, be, uh, it might be the insurance industry. And I think it's young people can only make a real kind of smart decision about where they want to go if they know the variety of employment opportunities out there yeah. at an employer the fact that they can today set up their own business and what does that look like and i see lots of youtubers and instagram kind of kind of folks actually making money can i do that well you need some advice and some help or should i just be a freelancer because i don't go and work in a corporate there's not a lot of, I think what we're getting wrong is there's not a lot of advice given to young people. And therefore, when you've got things like youth clubs shutting down all over the country and career advisors getting kind of taken out of schools, we end up with more young people with less of an idea about where they want to go. And then we have a lot, and then you have in underprivileged areas, sadly, that leads to lots of problems. That leads to knife crime, it leads to underage pregnancies, it leads to gangs, it leads to kind of social issues that could be could be solved because you see lots of the time you see intervention after it's happened and you see these people go from what you thought was serious kind of dire straits dire straits into being working in a great environment and earning a, earning a crust how yeah. about trying to intervene a little bit earlier before it all goes pete tong hey there thanks for listening so far I'd like to invite you to join the Journey Further Book Club, a community of really ambitious marketing and business people who want to learn from the brightest minds in our industry and beyond. Just go to journeyfurther.com and follow the link to sign up. Now, back to Paul. Are there, are there any examples of, of companies who you think are doing really well when it comes to the, the youth uh, element of diversity at the moment? I guess I think about some um, of the sort of influence marketing type companies who yeah. have realised the need to get people like that into their business and running their businesses. Yeah, I agree. I mean, someone like someone like a social chain, I think, has created an environment that that kind of celebrates that. Um, it, I really struggle when I think about big businesses um, because I think the vast majority of big businesses struggle um, and. They will have some very, they'll have some HR-led things, which are will run some apprenticeships and some internships, which bring in some young people, which is a good start, but it's not quite the same as kind of reimagining how your kind of business needs to operate for young people. Yeah. So, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't point to a great case study. I mean, it's interesting that we've got BT. I don't know if you've seen their latest campaign. Their whole new campaign is around this kind of area right okay, i've seen the rebrand um, but i've not yeah yeah i mean i forget i forget the i forget the name of the campaign but it's it's basically around trying to demonstrate that they're investing back into training and developing young people okay. and communities 
for, for the future. Now, it makes sense because BT, let's face it, is probably not a brand that if you asked 100 young people that would even get mentioned. No, um, some of them probably wouldn't even know. <laughs> and I, and I, I like yeah. to think from what I see that actually there's quite a big programme behind it from what I hear Mark Alera say that actually is making some real difference in the local communities. Um, but sometimes you think, well, is that just gloss in terms of a new spin to we're still relevant and it's not all about Google and Facebook and Snapchat. BT brings technology to you and we're local and we understand your communities. Yeah. It's a good story if it's true. Um, Greg's, I know from the conversation I had last week, that, that Greg's feeds 32,000 young people every morning they give them free breakfast wow. under privileges so i didn't know that story and they don't actually shout about that story but to me that was an example of a business that and they've done it for 20 years so they fed something like five million young people over 20 years wow. breakfast just to kind of provide them with that kind of core sustenance that they need but sadly i don't have a list i can't reel off two or three brands that i think are doing a great job on this today I guess um, one of the things you, you mentioned to me when we were talking um, sort of in the run-up to this was about the future of work. Mm. And I guess as we're considering, as we were discussing just then about the experience young people are going to have entering the workplace, at the same time, the workplace is changing yeah. at speed as well. What's your take on, well, I guess, the context that that gives to the, the, the youth discussion, but more generally as well, what do you think is the future of, of work? Great question. I, lo I love this conversation. Um, so the future work is desperately needed now, not in the future, is my favourite kind of phrase on this because I think everyone throws it out there and like, in the future, we need to change the way we work. I do not believe that the future of work is lots of people sat in buildings doing stuff at a desk. Um, I know it's been that way for a very long time, but... I mean, I work for a business that runs an entirely virtual operating model. So everyone works from home, unless they're with clients or they're with vendors or they're out in conferences. Everybody works from home. So everybody has the flexibility to fit in the other things around their life, uh, whether it's family or whether they have to go to the doctor or they have to run an errand. Actually, people are trusted and encouraged to do that. So to me, one core part of it is around businesses with the technology we have today, whether it's Zoom or Slack or WhatsApp or anything, don't have to be confined to you work in this location and this mm -hmm. location only. And that, and by the way, that means that any business can very quickly become international. Um, secondly, um, I think it's there's, the, the, the next element of it is around trust and empowerment. Um, there's some very interesting, although slightly academic, uh, kind of things written about uh, techniques like halacracy, which is basically giving people the ability to self-manage themselves. Um, and there's a there's a phrase that comes out of the book called Reinventing Organisations, which is written by a guy called Frederick Leloux, which is quite an old text, but he basically talks about different types of organisations over history and how it started, started with, I guess, in kind of the very early kind of Stone Age times, it started with a very dominant kind of male who was the hunter yeah. and everyone looked up to him. And then from that, there were a lot, a lot of very kind of dictatorial type environments where it was, I, I say, you do. And then over time, organizations started to move into okay there were teams where people had their own autonomy within a team but they were managed by kpis 
and that managed by KPI was the modern way of keeping control of people. And then it's emerged into a place where actually, if you take the KPIs away and you actually almost give that team the ability to control and deliver against their own targets and they run it and they're bonused on it, then that's that next iteration. And then the, the final iteration that he talks about, and he's seen some examples of this across the world, is TEAL organisations, so T-E-A-L. Uh, and TEAL organisations are the ones that really kind of encourage people to entirely self-manage themselves. Um, and they are given full autonomy uh, to understand and make decisions around hiring, changing product, changing services, so that they can deliver best against what their kind of particular kind of function thinks it should deliver. And look, I'm not saying everybody can get to that straight away, but to me, the future of work is as much about creating an environment where you recognize that your people could deliver so much more for you if they weren't all kind of directed and managed. Yeah. Those terms, direct and managed, I mean, they're in every company. Yeah, but if yeah. you think about them for a second, it's like if someone were to express what you do, what do you do? I direct you. I manage you. It's not particularly it's not pleasant verb, language. is it? Yeah. And we all know that actually the people that do that are the people that are least liked in business. <laughs> yeah. So something needs to change around that. Whether it's as far as self-management, I don't know. Um, and, and then I think the final thing is that the future of work for young people means that they'll do lots of different jobs. They might do lots of different jobs concurrently or they might jump from one job for two years to another job for two years to another job to two years in different geographies in order to grow and experience life. Mm-hmm. And today, I mean, I had a classic example earlier today from a headhunter who asked me for a recommendation and I sent one and the immediate thing that came back was they hop around a bit in jobs. We would look at that moving around as, well, job hopper, don't like job hoppers. So, yeah. and then, and, but there's an extremely good explanation why that person has done that, which I get and say, oh, okay. But it's perception. Mm. Perception is work is going into an office five days a week, working from nine till six, uh, having a boss, um, having personal development reviews, having KPIs. But is it? Is that the smartest way? And I know you've interviewed Bruce, who talks a lot about some of the maybe the the different ways we might look at this. Yeah. Uh, another book I quite like is um, Dan. Is it Dan? Dan Cohen's Alive at Work. Okay. Um, Dan Cable, I think it is. Dan Cable, Alive at Work, which basically talks about there's a part in our brain. Um, which is the seeking systems in our brain, which is most alive when we're doing things, when we're excited or in a creative zone and we're moving to solve a problem. But most people are only in that zone for a very small percentage of the time time, because they're just doing this administrative kind of grind the rest of the time. And if you can connect people with that seeking mindset, then their brain opens up and they become so much more valuable and more productive to you. And he's pointing out the fact that actually kind of cognitively organizations are structured in completely the wrong way to make the most out of humans yeah. <laughs> and when you look at it that way you go okay well we need to change something but how many radical models are there i mean everyone goes well google's got a radical model people can spend 20 percent of their time on something else it's like yeah but still everyone still goes to the office and everyone still is run by kpis and yeah targeted by particular things is there not a slightly more radical way and talking about flexibility and um from what you've said about where you now at the good way group control the exposed that's really allowed a lot more women to it has succeed in that organization and progress in the organization it hasn't i think 
I think they did what I said earlier. They went, what do we want to, what type of business do we want to be in two years, three years time? We want, we want a business where our incredible female kind of leadership team can continue to flourish and don't feel like they can't have a role in it. So then they went back and then what do we need to change? And they went and talked to uh, some of the, some of the female team that had either left or were thinking about a promotion and why they didn't want that promotion. And what they heard was, we need to have more flexibility. We need to have the ability to go and pick our kids up. So there was already the virtual operating model that worked well, but then we started to communicate and do regularly communicate out. If you need to go out in the middle of the day to sort something out with one of your kids for an hour, an hour and a half, then do it. There's nobody's gonna nobody's gonna judge you for that. Um, and likewise, if you need to go to your kids' assembly or whatever else, then do it. I mean, and and it's genuine. It's not like. Yeah. I've seen lots of organisations that say it and then somebody else or, or they write it up in this is the kind of company we are and our values and then there's one or two people who are not aligned with that and think, well, I've never done that. I didn't get to do that with my my family, so you're not going to. And then they, they push it back to presenteeism. You need to be here at that point in the afternoon because why do I need to be here? Well, just in case a client calls or in case I need you, I mean, that's just such an old-fashioned way of thinking of the yeah, world, isn't it? But yeah. you're right. It's the fle- Once you create a flexible environment and make it as make it easy, equally possible for anybody to do that job, that's diversity. So whether that's a woman with three kids or whether it's someone that's disabled or someone that's got a mental health issue or a young person versus someone, and actually ageism is also an issue in the advertising industry. Mm. Um, if you don't create an environment where everybody, any of those audiences could do that job, then it's not your company is not diverse enough. If you automatically block it and you go, I'm, I think almost when you write a spec to go, I want someone that is young, native to this environment they understand that then actually to some extent that you could argue that that is not particularly kind of diverse even though that might they might be the only people that understand influencer marketing or youtube yeah yeah by saying you have to be this particular person that you're then going well that means we're only going to hire these folks and we're never going to have any gray hair yeah <laughs> could debate that one it's <laughs> interesting and, and it kind of it brings it back to that connection between culture and diversity what type of culture do you need to create which yeah. is going to foster diverse t- diversity in the long term but a diverse relationship between people as well I guess yes yeah exactly and a diversity of once you get once you get diversity you get a diversity of relationship but you also get a diversity of conversation and thought because different people with different backgrounds and different perceptions on things should bring a different perspective whereas if everybody's discussing a certain problem if everybody's from broadly the same social class yeah. and from broadly the same kind of kind of they live in the same area then what's going to happen you're going to get the same 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 and same 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 is really bad yeah. <laughs> i mean advertising and marketing we talk a lot now about audiences and segmenting and talking differently to people but I would argue that most of the time we still push the same message to all of those different audiences, and I think the same is true of the same is true of organisations. Organisations are going to have to get a lot better at dealing with the fact that they've got different cohorts of people and different job functions that want different things. If you're a data analyst versus a creative, or you're in the finance team versus 
uh, in the sales team, what you need and how you're wired and how you're understood and how you need to be developed is utterly different. Yet most L&D plans in most organisations are, we've only got this budget, we fit in, right? It's like we've got these five training modules and you need to choose which of them is right for you. Yeah. Like, well, I don't think any of them are right for me. Well, there isn't anything else, so just pick one of them. That's, and I understand why that happens because I've run big P&Ls and you have constraints. Yeah. But again, that doesn't mean that technology can't help us solve these things. Technology can help to understand the key areas or for opportunity or the weaknesses for someone. And then you can, you can connect people to, and we do this, connect people to LinkedIn for different learning programs where people have identified a really specific thing that they want to learn. Right. There are lots of online learning platforms that have huge amounts of depth and we just will give them access to that on top of all the other training. Because if, if I go back to where I started... If you've got those groups of people and you can't serve their requirements or their needs, then what happens? They get fed up and then eventually they leave and they go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the areas of training which we're looking into as a business at the moment is around mental health. Mm. And we've got one person who's dedicated to talent and well-being person within the business, but they're now responsible for 50-odd people. So that team needs to grow. But then yeah. a lot of the, uh, particularly the managers in the business, have kind of said that they don't feel equipped to have conversations about mental health they don't really know where to start or how to approach it or if a problem came up Mm. what to Mm. do where to go um and yeah it's just an area which we're looking into at the moment and we're we're sort of in the early stages of it but yeah it's great that you're looking at it right because i don't think anybody has got those perfect answers but just starting to talk about it and make it make it non-taboo that you can have these conversations is a good thing yeah because and it, so Jack, uh, who runs Big Youth Group, always says to me, there are two types of mental health. Everyone's got like kind of standard normal mental health where they've got anxiety and concerns about things. And then there's obviously kind of serious kind of mental illness kind yeah. of mental health where actually you're right. You do need to have some appreciation of some, whether someone's got a bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or whatever it might be. That's very difficult. But everyone's got the everyone's got the anxiety and the triggers are different for everybody Um, so I think it's just about being great leaders are aware enough and appreciative enough of the fact that people don't turn up in a 100% perfect kind of fashion every time they walk into the office every day if you can appreciate that people have got other things on their mind and that giving someone a break and some time to decompress will probably mean they can do something better then I think you're going you're at least half the way to being able to solve it yeah, I completely agree. Um, yeah, I just wanted to sort of finish up the last few questions. I guess uh, we've kind of touched on the various sort of organisations that you're involved in, the various businesses. How do you keep yourself motivated? Mm. Do you set yourself goals? How do you deal with any, with if you have any setbacks, how do you deal with those and keep yourself on track? It's a good question. So I, so I, I kind of set my goals around what I want to achieve personally, what I want to achieve within the kind of business I'm in and how I want to help people. Um, and I have those three broad areas and I kind of fill each of those areas up with new things all the time. So personally, it might be like recently I decided that I've always wanted to, I always wanted to be able to be a DJ, but I never thought I had the talent. So oh, okay. I decided to go and buy some decks and start to teach myself. Um, because I feel like I needed to actually find a new space for learning and connect with something new. Uh, the business thing, there's obviously always kind of things and there are always clear targets, but the, the helping people 
um, a lot of the things I do are very much attuned back to where we started around whether it's kind of kind of gender diversity, whether it's helping young people, uh, mental health, um, and just mentoring per se, and mm. trying to help people open their eyes. So um, I don't set myself individual specific goals for this, but I just try and make sure that I've got a fairly good balance of kind of objectives with each of those three buckets, really. Nice. And then what was your, your second question was, how do I keep myself? Well, almost, how do you deal with setbacks? Setbacks, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll be very honest. I think I grew up in a generation where leadership was being that strong person up at, up at the front and like not showing any emotion and just getting mm. on with it. And I've definitely learned over the last, probably only the last five years that that is, that is not the way to be and that you need to show some vulnerability and you need to actually demonstrate when actually you're not, you're not necessarily feeling that confident in yourself. Um, so I've definitely, and I, and I do this great male support group thing, uh, which actually I tweeted about earlier today because today's International Men's Day, yeah. where there's a lot of talk around male suicide and kind of how do you make sure that men, because we do talk a lot about how we need to change things from a gender diversity perspective, which we all, all definitely agree with, but there are also huge problems with kind of men of a certain age and suicide rates are amongst middle-aged men is, is sky high. So yeah. this male support group is started by a guy who's got this vision of, by encouraging people to talk and share their emotions about relationships, work, kind of what's going on kind of in their head versus kind of what they're expressing. I found that that's a really, really valuable. So that's definitely been one thing I've learned over the last few years, um, having an outlet. And I'm just not one of those people that's very good at kind of talking about setbacks. But now I've realized actually the way to get through setbacks is to express it and talk it through and then work out work out what it is you could have done differently um, and then work out what you're going to learn from it and then move on. Put it in your trash and move on because if you take it with you too much, then it becomes an anxiety. And if you're one of those people that really kind of believes in success, then when you don't, when you don't succeed, you take that baggage with you and it makes you, makes you a, less, a less kind of um, effective person, I think. Interesting. Very fantastic. So just got three final questions. I asked these to uh, yeah. everybody who comes on. The first one is, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? I guess you have to give an example just then, but maybe there's... Maybe there's no, there is another one. So I, 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 I didn't, and it's a bit of the wrong way around, but I didn't used to believe in things happen for a reason. Now I do. Okay. I used to think pe the people that said that, I'm like, what does that mean? It's just like, there's some like fake... But I do now. I'm, I, I watched The Secret the other day, The Law of Attraction on Netflix. No, and uh, for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's worth watching, actually. It's basically a documentary around the same book that was called The Secret, which is all around... basically says that the most successful people in history all knew one secret, which is that extreme positive thought and visualisation of posit positive things happening is what draws great things to you. Uh, now, when you have some American evangelists talking about it, it I kind of switch off. Yeah. But when I actually see kind of some smart people talking about actually just by every day having positive affirmations and writing them down and then visualizing where I want to be in six months and thinking that way and not letting negative thought in, I think that makes sense. So I have witnessed in my own life over the last few years that if I believe in that, then things do happen for a reason. And sometimes when someone says that to you, when something really shit has happened, it's really difficult to go, yeah, I see it. But generally there is a, there is something in it. And somebody else that's an advisor for a big youth group 
uses a phrase which I also use a lot now, which is there is always a miracle in everything. You just have to look for it. Mm. Like even at the worst possible moment, there's something good in everything. So I do believe in that now. Nice. Um, secondly, if this wasn't your mission, I guess pursuing diversity in all of its in all of its different forms, what would be? Probably, probably being in a very kind of developing country, whether it's Africa or Latin America, and trying to help help young kids, like a really young age, help just help them. Um, it would it would probably be do something that's kind of really truly kind of vocational. Yeah. And then finally, um, you obviously know about the Journey for the Book Club. Mm. Um, if you could recommend one book for members of the the community to read, what would it be? So I did. I mentioned it earlier. So um, I'll, I'll reiterate it again because I think it links to this, the topic of this uh, to this conversation. Alive at Work uh, by Daniel Cable, I think it is. Um, basically, talks about understanding what are the things that really kind of get you excited and buzzing at work. And I think whether you're a leader or you're just an employee starting out, um, it's a very helpful kind of text to kind of help you think about what should the workplace and culture look like because you're either contributing it to it as a, an individual or you're contributing to an individual and you're actually shaping it as a leader. Mm. Fantastic. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time. Really interesting discussion. Pleasure. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. Paul has thought so much about these issues, which is why he's such an interesting person to speak to. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did, please do click subscribe. Please leave us a rating and review. We would really appreciate it. And do sign up to the Journey Further Book Club. It's completely free. It's a community designed for time-pressured marketers with over 800 members from the world's leading brands. We read the best business books and try and distill down the key ideas straight into your inbox, straight into your WhatsApp every week so you can try and start making a change in your business. Just go to journeyfurther.com and hit the book club link to sign up. If you have any other ideas, any other feedback for us, or you'd just like to say hello, then do get in touch over email podcast at journeyfurther.com.